ahead and begin opening it to the book of Revelation and using the Pew Bible, you can see on page 1041 will be our text. Um, we've read chapter 22, verse 1 to 5 this morning already, so I'll just read chapter 21 and those verses in front of you there. Just another reminder, we're in our third week in August, and then for August we um, poll or ask for you to send us uh, topics. And um, we looked at the first week, what is Presbyterianism? That was a question that many had. Um, we looked at what is faith last week. Uh, this morning we're going to look at what is heaven. And then next week we're going to look at um, how do we as Christians engage or submit to even our political authorities. Um, and with that week, actually, we're, we're bringing in uh, Chuck Garriott, uh, Reverend Chuck Garriott, who works for Ministry of the State. I'm, I'm somebody who is, if we can find somebody that's, you know, in that space way more than I am, let's hear from them. So, you know, I'm excited to hear what Chuck has to say about, about that. But um, with all of these topics, they really are conversation starters because you can't exhaust it in one sermon. And so, good segue for our topic this morning on heaven. And um, uh, look, looking forward to, to this, but also to perhaps any further discussion that will happen or come from this. Um, and so uh, let us now turn our attention to uh, the reading of God's Word found in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away to the spirit, in the spirit, to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then over to verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring 
their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will, be, they will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts, that we would believe in you. Give us eyes and ears to see and hear things this morning by your Spirit that we otherwise could not. Show us Jesus and who he is and what it means to be a follower of his as we look at your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love watching movies with my girls um, and actually like re-watching movies with them, perhaps even more, um, especially if that movie is somewhat suspenseful and maybe even if we, if we should call it a scary movie. We have scary movies that we watch. And the reason that I like watching them over a second or third or fourth time is because we know how it ends. And, you know, that first go, we're not really sure what's happening here. And it kind of brings uh, some of the suspense and some of the fear along with it. But when you see the ending, and we typically only watch happy ending movies, uh, it gives us a little bit of rest. And it actually allows the second and third and fourth viewing to be a little more enjoyable. Um, I can handle some of the bumps in the road and some of the, the, the places where people jump out of closets and scare me because I know what's going to happen at the end. Um, this morning as we talk about heaven— uh, we talk about this uh, in theological logical terms as glorification. Uh, the coming of Christ and the end of this life and the beginning of uh, eternity with him when he returns. And in many ways, Christians, uh, the story of Christianity especially, but Christians enter this story and, it, and it's kind of like watching something over again that you know how it ends. That you sit here this morning not wondering uh, what is going to happen as it pertains to the Christian story. You know that Jesus is coming back according to his word, and you know that he is going to make all things new. There are some details there that we are not aware of. Um, but I can't help but wonder that knowing how the story ends as you do this morning has immense implications for how you live today. And I want us to begin there, but also end there this morning as we take a stab at, at, at pulling from Scripture what it is that we can expect the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Because how we think that is going to end and how we think that is going to come about, what we believe about how the story ends, impacts everything you do and believe as a Christian today. So with that, let me— uh, Think about our time this morning with what do we mean when we say heaven. So let's uh, do some, some, some terminology here. And then um, we're going to get to continuities and discontinuities of heaven. And then we're going to look at just some basic impl implications for what this means. Okay? All right? So what do we mean when we say heaven? We'll look at then continuity and discontinuities of heaven in this life. 
and then we'll look at implications for it. So what do we mean when we say heaven? I think you can tell by the title of this sermon, you know, perhaps uh, there is uh, in the air that you breathe um, this idea for those maybe not in the church or maybe even in the church that we're just going to be floating around on clouds, this disembodied experience. I was reminded in my study of Gary Larson's The Far Side comic strip, uh, one in particular where he, it's a picture of a man who is sitting on a cloud all by himself. There are only other clouds in the picture as you look upon it, and he is wearing a plain white, white robe, which is a clearly appropriate for heaven. Maybe it's the uniform for heaven. And there's also a halo on his head and angel's wings on his back. And then there's a completely bored expression on his face with a little bubble over his head that reads, wish I'd brought a magazine. I don't know if this is maybe where you begin with your thoughts of what heaven is like or not, um, but certainly we have all wondered, what will we be doing? What will heaven be like? And so as we begin that, let's talk about what heaven is and what heaven isn't. And I want to be brief here and not spend too much time here. But when the Bible talks about heaven and when we talk about heaven, we can kind of mean two different things. I think we all mean this place we go where there isn't any um, pain and suffering and death and it's awesome. And that's all true. It's all going to be awesome. Uh, but just for the sake of terminology this morning, um, when we talk about heaven, I, I, I want us to at least talk about it in here as the new heavens and new earth. Okay, so there is a sense that when you die, and let me make one assumption here for this morning, that all of us in this room are going to die before Jesus comes back. That's my one assumption in this room for, to, for this message. I hope it's not true. I hope he comes back before I finish this sermon. But for this sermon, right, Let's make the assumption that we're all going to die before he returns. And if that happens, right, the scriptures speak of us going to a place to be with Jesus. And then we come to another place when he returns, the new heavens and the new earth. N.T. Wright calls this life after life after death. Okay? And so a lot of us get hung up with, with, with interesting philosophies and theologies of this disembodied, uh, non-materialistic heaven where we're floating on clouds, wondering if this is something I really want to be a part of. And there's a sense in which, yes, when you die, your soul goes to be with Jesus. And we'll read that in just a second in the Shorter Catechism. But what, what heaven primarily is about is the picture that we just got in Revelation of the new heavens, the physical new heavens and earth coming together, the realm of heaven and earth coming in to be one. And so as we move forward with this, that is what I'm going to mean when I say heaven. I don't know much about what happens when we die before Jesus returns. I don't think we're going to mind, okay? And we can talk about what that looks like. There are some places in Scripture that give us some uh, you know, information about that, but I'm going to spend most of our time on what it looks like uh, for Jesus' final return to come. Question 37 of the Shorter Catechism says, and I've read this before, this is just one of the best, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. That's awesome. And so immediately pass into glory. Again, awesome. What that means is you are with Jesus as you are now but in a different way, a better way, a more fuller way. Then it says this, and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. 
It's this resurrection that the Shorter Catechism references uh, as the final return of Jesus when he comes to make all things new. And what the Bible gives us the most details about when it comes to heaven or life after life after death. So let us go there now. When we begin this topic of heaven and what the new heavens and the new earth is like, I want to just try to frame it with continuities and discontinuities, okay? Um, And um, again, I'm sure there are questions you have about this that I'm not going to answer. And so just to preface it with that as well, please come up to me afterwards or send me an email. I'd love to dialogue further with you about what those questions might be. But when we talk about continuities, what we want to talk about um, what the picture uh, of Scripture gives us. We're, this, is, this is trying to be uh, in a, with a topic that we don't get a ton of information about. We're trying to be as close to what Scripture does give us. And I'll say this on the, on the, on the, um, uh, on the front end. I grew up with an eschatology, which is a fancy word that means you know, the study of end times. I grew up with an eschatology that everything is going to burn. And maybe you grew up with that. Maybe you still hold that. Um, that, you know, what, what happens in this earth, what happens in this place doesn't matter because God's going to burn it up and destroy it one day, and we're all going to be somewhere all in a cool new place somewhere else. And um, I just want to say that's not really the picture the Bible gives us. And I've been really thankful for what the Reformed tradition has offered on this topic, primarily because, to me, growing up, Christianity was about one thing. It was about saving souls on this earth before Jesus returns. Uh, It was about evangelism. It was about going out and saying, hey, look, whatever you're doing, that's fine, right? You've got to pay bills and you've got to raise a family. But what, what really is important is evangelism, is bringing people to Christ. And it is important But the primary driver of that is the idea of how the story ends, which is that all of this is going to be, you know, it's just going to go away. And therefore, the sacred-secular dichotomy grows further and further and further. What the Bible shows us is something completely different. And I'm thankful for being brought back to more what Scripture talks about because, you know, Christianity can't just be about, do you believe in Jesus? Are you saved? At least for me, it can't. And I'm thankful that there is a story that we are still a part of uh, that is going to be reunited with a new heavens and a new earth, which means it has implications for our lives today and what we do today here. That's new for you. That's that's a mouthful. If it's not, let's dive in and let us uh, see then, based on that, the continuities and discontinuities of this new heaven and this new earth. And so first, as we look at the text, again, we're going to kind of stroll through Revelation 21 here. Uh, We'll begin with verses 1 and 2. The first thing that we see as far as continuity is concerned is that heaven, or final glory, the new heavens, new earth, remember, that's that's the one we're talking about, it will be physical. It will be physical, or as uh, my, my friend, Reverend Way Rutherford, who you'll hear a lot from this morning, who's done great work on this topic, uh, says it'll be earthy. It'll be earthy. The picture in Revelation is not some disembodied spiritual existence, but both physical and spiritual. Again, it is bringing together of heaven and earth uh, th- those two things. We think about how the Bible is structured. We think about how the Bible begins in paradise. It begins in a garden, but it ends in paradise too, just better. It's a city. 
as we think about how um, the things that are laid out in the, in the beginning of Scripture and the way they look at the end of Scripture, there's much continuity with, with what the oneness that God is pointing to, the oneness of these two realms, the oneness of man and woman as they come together in marriage, to what speak of this thing. And so this picture that we get at the end of, the, of, of his creation and of the heavenly realms coming together, it, it is finally this place where those boundaries no longer exist. And they are one, undefiled. When we begin to look at this text, we see um, that, that this is going to be in some ways similar to what we experience here today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What John depicts here and is a new heavens and a new earth that is what coming down here they are as one pastor writes transformed and the one of the major aspects of that transformation is that the realm of god what we refer to as heaven and the realm of mankind what we refer to as earth have become the same place that's the image Revelation 21 and 22 then talk about the new heavens and the new earth as being what an enormous city, having things like gates, walk, walls, rivers, streets, and trees. We can even go back to Romans 8, which talks about how all of creation, i.e. earth and the cosmos, all of God's creation, will one day be what? Set free. Set free from its bondage and corruption. Creation then will not be ultimately destroyed. Rather what? Set free, renewed restored. Peter makes reference to this in Acts chapter 3, where he refers to the time for what? Restoring all things. So already, the new heavens and new earth is significantly more than mere floating on clouds. Thank goodness. It's where you are right now, made new, restored. This is the first thing. Heaven will be earthy, physical, Second, we will have bodies. This is important. <laughs> Unlike much of the philosophy and spiritualism of antiquity that pinned the physical against the spiritual, that is one being bad and one being good, Christianity comes along and it says, nope, they're both good. Both good. In fact, that's what God is saying in Genesis, that creation, it was good, right? The creation around, but what was really good? What was very good? It was mankind, man and woman, Nowhere in the Bible, then, do we get a picture that our bodies don't matter and are not a part of the new heavens and the new earth. I think some of the um, phraseology that we use about uh, having a soul kind of sends us into this path of philosophy of old. We don't have a soul. We are a living soul, is what the Bible says. This is not just some sort of, like, you know, vessel that is just here for us and we'll leave it and go on to be with God. No, this is part of who God has made you in his glory. This will be resurrected and made new. You will have a physical presence. We will have bodies. Paul says in Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his, what, glorious body. Jesus' glorious body appeared to many after the resurrection. He ascended into heaven in his body. 
Before this, he ate food and he drank water. He was different, but he was the same. He had the same personality that his people did recognize, and not as somebody completely new and different, but at the same time, he passed through walls. So I don't want to push this too far because there is, of course, great mystery awaiting us. But the dominating picture that Scripture paints, both with Jesus' resurrected body and the New Testament authors, as they would, they would tell, is that we will be reunited in our old bodies. The joy of it will be that they will be perfected. So that pain in your knee this morning that just won't go away, it won't be there. Your knee will be perfect. Christians then can look at things like death even in the face and say to that person who we are putting six feet under, I will see you walk again. Which is something that nobody can say in any religion at this point or is saying. The resurrected body is strictly Christian. Christian. This is important. Thirdly, we will work Lloyd George has this to say. He says, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape. Me too, Lloyd. Me too. Thankfully, even the best Sunday morning worship that we experience and hear that you've experienced somewhere Right? They're what? Tastes. They're tastes. Tastes of the real thing, a reality that is infinitely better than what you experience on this earth. All to say, the Bible does not depict the new heavens and new earth as an eternity of church services. If we look at Revelation 22, 3b, we note that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, the Greek word here for worship is service, or hired for service. Literally, and his servants will serve. But how will they serve? Right? Not as slaves to his command, but similar to how we serve God today, by use of our gifts, working out his plans. You can go to parables such as the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 or the parable of the ten minas in, in Luke 19 where Jesus says that the re reward for those that were faithful in this life is what? More and greater responsibility in the next. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but there are things that we will do and accomplish. But I think the best picture for us to, to go back to when we deal with realms of paradise is to go back to our first paradise. Go back to the garden. Right? Before sin entered this world, God gave Adam and Eve work, gave them things to do, uh, gave them mandates. Right? But what's more important than that is what, were the, what was the work for? What was the be fruitful, multiply for? It was to be a continuation of their image-bearing status. It was to be a continuation of spreading glory all throughout the world. Whose glory? God's by the way that they steward the creation, by the way that both of them and their oneness would come together and reflect the self-giving love of God, the Trinity himself, and bearing children. It's not just something to do as we buy time for him to return. 
This stuff has purposes, and it matters, and it matters for eternity. And so to consider the purposes for those mandates and how he instructed Adam and Eve to do their work gives us great hope and understanding that this, is, this would be there as well. And no doubt it will. We will be servants of his who will serve him. I note also that as the kings bring in, and we'll get to this in a second, right, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What is that? It's the best of their culture. It's the best of the things that they're doing. More on that later. But I think it's important to recognize that as we think about what we will do, and we think about how our work uh, reflects our king, right? There is, there is a wonder, right? There is a joy of knowing that our work, whatever it might be, will not be cursed anymore. That, that what we do today, the frustration of work today, that, that is not just because we haven't figured out how to use Microsoft Excel well. That is because sin is real. You can't work a garden without weeds getting into it, right? No frustration in your work is building a garden and, 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 and stewarding it without deer coming in to eat up your stuff and weeds ruining everything and it overgrowing and you just being tired and not being able to get back to weed it and then the next thing you know it's overgrown. That's frustrating, right? Uh, craftsmanship without failure. Those who use their hands, those who use their minds to work systems to build things so that it will produce an efficient outcome. No failure. Engineers in this room, Tell me something that doesn't have a failure component to it in this world. Right? A rhetorical question. Um, can you imagine that? Much of our work today has low yield, meaning we put in, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever we, put, we put into it, it might yield 10, 15, 20% fruit. And we just kind of go along with it because it's just sort of, well, this is just life, and that's true. But what Scripture is showing us is that there's coming a time when, when, when that frustration will be gone, when that curse will be lifted, and the work that we do, that we bring into our, 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 to Jesus, won't be frustrated. It'll, it'll, it'll be so joyful and, and so glorious because of that. Um, I know there are many in this room that, that this is actually the thing they're most excited about when it comes to heaven. And that's not a surprise. And that's a good thing because you've been created for work and for good works. Okay? I digress. There's much more to say about this. But th this, we will work in the new heavens and in the new earth. We will be servants of uh, the one true God, as the text says. Uh, next, there will be cultures in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, as we've noted from Revelation 7, 9, that every nation, tribe, and tongue before them will bow. Revelation 21, 24 says this, as we just read, that kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Seems to indicate that everything that cultures have created that is worthwhile, but also re, you know, restored their glory and honor will be brought in. Jerry Seinfeld makes the observation Anytime I see a movie or a TV show where there's people from the future or another planet, they're all wearing the same thing. He continues to suggest that it appears that the human race way off into the future 
has advanced to the point where everyone just said, all right, enough already. We're all wearing the same thing. The Bible doesn't suggest this, although it doesn't say what we'll wear. However, when we read verses like this one, it suggests that the culture in some way will exist with ethnicities, with nations, with tribes, and with tongues. There will be a new heavens, new earth culture. But it doesn't mean that the way that you've been created will somehow uh, go away. I've literally heard people, and I'll just go ahead and say this, I've heard white people make the assumption that we're all going to look like white people in heaven. And while that sounds silly and foolish, right, all of us have this bias that like, we're, the, we're, we're what we're going to look like. And I just want to say no. Like, like the diversity that we experience on this earth right, is a representation of the diversity that we are going to experience in heaven as well. And so it also means, right, the more diverse your relationships, the more diverse the people you wor worship with, right, you're actually getting closer to what the new heavens and the earth will feel like, as opposed to some homogenous group of people standing together doing something. But there will be culture, and that is important. Um, these are just a few things, a few of the continuities that we can pull from this text and begin to see. There are many others. Let me move now to the discontinuities of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and these are the things that we tend to dream about the most, and for good reason. The first is perfect fellowship with God. Perfect fellowship with God. Uh, if you hear one thing and one thing only from this morning, it's, it's at the best and the most important part of the new heavens and the new earth. As much as we can agree or disagree on what's going to happen there is that you will have perfect fellowship with God. It is the defining, defining act as we look at both creation, as we look at the new heavens and the new earth from Revelation, of what? The new heavens coming down to dwell with man and God saying the same, that what? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the best part. This guides everything else. What was whole and then was interrupted, discontinued, separated, and that is God's perfect fellowship with man in the garden, but those separated because of sin, right, it is now whole again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. You will see Jesus face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is more important than anything else that I could say to you about what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. And there are implications for this. More on that later. Second, we will be loved by him. We won't just be servants of his doing his jobs that he wants for us. We just won't be sort of in this other state of living. We will actually be loved by him. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Uh, the way a parent tends to the needs of a child or the way that a friend embraces a dear friend in a time of need, right? Those all speak to what God will actually do for us in full. 
It will be a father to a son or daughter care in the fullest sense. Memories as a child that I have, and they grow, they're not that they're not there, I just don't remember them as much, but, but, but the, the faint ones that I have, memories as a child being embraced by my dad or my mom um, and, and them caring for me, whether I scratched my knee on the pavement playing basketball or something worse, and I'm sure they have more memories of this than I do. But there are few experiences in our life than as children when we are embraced by someone who loves us in that way, where we feel a sense of love and rest and peace like no other because we grow up to be adults, responsible to care for other people, right? Where we miss out uh, in some ways of people caring for us because now we're the caregivers. But I, I think this image of father and son is so important that we get in Scripture that, that your father in heaven will actually wipe out the tear from your eye. One pastor writes, how beautiful that one day we will not have to try to feel or think about what it feels like for God to hold us like a good daddy holds his kid, but we will just, but we will just experience it fully. No more having to remind ourselves, as great as that is, that God loves us like a father, but we will just live it forever. This also means that God's care uh, will be the removal of pain, of crying, of mourning, of death. As I mentioned earlier, the word for tear here is it's singular, the croon. And the sense here is that God will wipe out the tear that is the response to all that is pain and mourning and sadness and death. Why? Because it won't exist anymore and thus won't ever be needed again. What this means is that your tears will come to an end. And I want you to remember that. Remember that at your next funeral or moment of sadness, right, there's coming a time when you will never do this thing, which is actually right in the moment again. This is what your heavenly Father will do for you. He will, he will care for you. He will love you in this way as a father to a son, as a parent to a child. Uh, Thirdly, the new heavens and the new earth will be free of anything bad. And this is the one that we're, you know, most familiar with, right? Sin will be no more. And there's three categories that we get here, right, to sort of uh, hooks, right? There's no sin in you, there's no sin in others, and there's no sin over the creation, according to this text. This is what it means when, he, when John writes, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. So there's no sin in you. The obvious thing that we can say about heaven is that it will be free of sin. No more sin in us. No more sin in you. No more sin's effects over creation. Everything as it should be, but better. And that's really the best part, right? As good as the garden is, it's going to be better. But not only will there be not any sin, but you will be unable to sin. If you continue reading Revelation 21, getting into 12 and verses 12 to 22, you get a picture of the new city of Jerusalem, which is a representation of God's people here that is absolutely perfect. As one pastor notes about this, the angel measures the city and it is a perfect cube, which is supposed to remind us of the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle and temple where God's presence dwelt and where he met with the high priest. And so the picture is that God's people here are as perfect as he is. Not God's, but as perfect as he is. They are righteous. That means that one day you will never have a judgmental thought. 
That means one day you will never have a lustful thought. You will never want to tear someone down or think suspiciously of another in sin. You'll never be jealous or covet again. You won't be angry or say something hurtful to those around you. You'll never have a greedy thought, right? Laziness and sloth will be no more. And let me just note, I'm saying thoughts intentionally here, right? Of course, actions will, won't be there as well, but we're talking about the things that are going on in here that no one sees that the Bible is showing us this will be made new. Instead, you will always think perfectly about others. Always respect other people perfectly. Always be excited and joyful for how God has provided for us and others. Always be truthful. Always be productive and generous. No sin in you, but also no sin in others. And if we go back to verse 4, where it talks about how there will be no pain and no sorrow, right? Much of the pain and the sorrow certainly is we afflict on ourselves, but most of the pain and sorrow we experience in this world is because of what others have done to us. What this is also saying is that in their perfection, you will no longer be hurt by others or experience the separation of others because death will be no more. Loved ones won't get sick. Cancer will never exist again. No more school shootings. No more war. No more car wrecks, heart attacks, or strokes. No more miscarriages. No more divorce. No more breakups. No more sex trade. No more rape. No more racism or injustice. No more bad news. And perhaps what's just as good as all this is just no more goodbyes from the people you love. Much of what we are experiencing here is, is described, and, I, and I, I don't like using this illustration because it, 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 it glorifies marriage, but just know that it's just an illustration. Right? We're, we're in the engagement period of this new heavens and new earth, and for those that have been engaged before, like, it, it's not great. I mean, there's excitement and buildup, and you know, but it's not great. As a matter of fact, it's pretty frustrating. Um, that's where you are right? That's where I, we are, right? The marriage, and which is also one of the, 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 the leading images in Scripture, right? The marriage supper of the Lord, like, that is the new heavens and the earth, the consummation of it all, right? The oneness of it all. Like, and one of the worst parts about engagement is it's sort of like this sort of dating on steroids, but you still have to say goodbye to the person you love at the end of the night. And what, what, what God is trying to tell us is that there's coming a time when you won't ever have to do that again to those you love, to those you care about. Lastly, created, creation is liberated, set free. Many have written books and tried to capture what this will be like, and I'm running late on time here. My favorite, though, is C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. Wonderful, wonderful book to read, although we disagree a lot on the theology of things. He is... Just his imagination is just awesome, and I love reading this book because of that. If you don't know what this book is about, it's essentially his depiction of, of what heaven could be like, and he prefaces it with, like, this is not coming from Scripture. This is my imagination. I mean, it is coming from Scripture, but he's not trying to write a commentary on this. And the premise of the book is, is that it follows this main character who gets in this bus and ascends this mountain, uh, and hopefully to make, make it to heaven. And, and as they ascend, they make different stops along the way. And on these stops, there's the opportunity for people to get on the bus— 
Um, and, uh, and also this person gets off the bus at times to explore. And in chapter 4, this person gets off the bus and begins to explore around him because he's drawn in by the beauty of everything that he sees. And so as he's taken in by it, he steps onto, or off the bus and onto this pathway, and he steps onto some grass. And as Lewis writes, it hurts his foot, and Lewis says this. He says, walking proved difficult. The grass, hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet, made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock. I suffered pains like those of the mermaid and Hans Andersen. A bird ran across in front of me, and I envied it. It belonged to that country and was as real as the grass. What Lewis suggests is that the effects of sin haven't just separated us from God and brought uh, bad things into the world, which it has in, 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 in the sin of the world and our sin. But what he also suggests here is that sin has affected the creation in us in a way that keeps us actually from experiencing it in its full. As God has intended to it. Lewis's account here is that the grass here, in this case, or heaven, is actually a place where creation is more real than what we experience here today. And that this person in its imperfected state can't actually handle the reality of what creation will be like in its fullness. The grass even hurts his feet. When God says that he is making all things new, this isn't that we, we will, isn't just we will experience something we will experience one, sorry, it isn't that we will experience what we do someday just without sin, we will actually experience creation in ourselves as it was intended to be experienced. And the fullness and reality that God intended for those that grew up watching TV and SpectreVision, right, heaven will truly be watching it in HD. But infinitely better. I mean, it's still just a, a, a bad illustration. We will see colors as God intended, right? We will hear things as God hear, uh, wants us to hear them. Music will be played the way music should be played. All systems in God's will and God's in this creation will work perfectly and be the versions of themselves that God intended. This also means no more natural disasters, hurricanes, wildfires, right? No more spider bites and bee stings. Why? Because the created world will stop all the ways that it fights back. The lion and the lamb will live together it will be released or set free, as Paul says. So no more sin, no more sin in you, no more sin in other people, no more sin affecting the creation. And we can try, but none of us can truly imagine life without sin. We can get pictures of it, right? But we can't imagine it fully both in us and in others and the effects that it has on creation, which is why there should, should always be a longing, right, in Christians for this reality as we work here to push back against the fall and as we put to death our sin here by the Holy Spirit, the reality will come only, though, in the new heavens and the new earth, our final glory, or what theologians call glorification. God finally making all things new as he promised. Well, these are just a few of the discontinuities that we will experience. So briefly, what about the implications? And I'm out of time, so I'm just going to give the headings here, and we can talk about them later. I've touched on it already, but what you do here matters. That's one of the implications of this. What you do here matters, your work, right? The things that you do, the way that you uh, push back against the fall, the things you work for, right? The quality of the things you make, 
all this speak of somebody else, and they speak of your creator, right? And there's a sense that this will have eternal implications as those two worlds are married. And so there isn't the sacred-secular dichotomy that we might think. The most important work is not what I'm necessarily doing up here, although it's important. It's just as important what you're doing, where you're doing it, as agents of God, right? As ambassadors of Christ going out into the world uh, to take that little space, that little cubicle that you sit in, and, and being light in dark places, by being uh, the best employee you can be, the best teacher you can be, right? Because all truth is God's truth. There isn't anything that you do that isn't true and good, that isn't from him. And so don't ever think for a second that what you go do tomorrow is somehow a lesser form of work than what we're doing in this building. That is not what Scripture is telling you. What you do matters. Second, the new heavens and new earth gives us perspective on suffering in this life. Um, I, can't, I can't say enough about this, but, and, and Paul goes there in so many places. So he says this in, in 2 Corinthians, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. That is his phrase for the deepest suffering that anybody could have in this world. And to some that's offensive, but he says this this way because of what he knows. He knows where we're going. And he's experienced more suffering than any of us in this room, more than likely. Light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. In Romans 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Knowing where you are going and what, what that is changes how you experience suffering today. And this isn't just something that, you know, we use against people in times of suffering. Well, you just need to, to know, you know, shake it off, right? It's not, we don't use that theology against others in that way, right? It's God's goodness to us to give that during our journey here. To know that there's coming a day when that suffering will end. And that is a beautiful thing. Notice something interesting, though, about this suffering in Revelation 22 and 20, uh, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And I'd read this many times before without somebody pointing out to me. It's interesting that what is at the center of the city in this vision of John. It's the Lamb. And you might be wondering, why is that interesting? Well, what it's saying is that in some sense, we will have a memory and understanding of the cross. A memory and understanding of what, what, what allowed us to even be brought here. Which has further implications, right? It, it means that your suffering, your injustices, the things that you have, right? God's not just going to bring you to heaven. And, and, and if we're familiar with, with, with Men in Black, right? The alien movie. When civilians see aliens, they, they do the flashy thing, the sort of spiritual amnesia, to wipe away your memory. That's bad eschatology. We're not going to a place where the things that happen to you here are not in some way going to be redeemed, or somehow we are going to be let in on how this brings more glory to the Lamb. 
And I say that because there's those who have been hurt. There's those who have wounds, right? That, that, that you will carry these things. And what it means is that the suffering will end, and that's great. But it also tells us that it's not pointless. And I'm not going to be able to tie that up into a bow for you this morning. But part of what the new heavens and the new earth is, is you sitting down with your creator and understanding the plan of salvation for you in this way that somehow brings glory about to him in a way that you will understand. This is the healing of the nations. It isn't to go about and just sort of flash your memory so that none of this ever happened and we'll just start over. God's better than that. He's going to bring restoration to you and to all of your sadness. Because without that, there is no making all things new. It's a cheap making all things new. And don't, don't let anybody tell you that one day, some way, we'll, we'll get away from this and all this will just go away and we won't have to think about it again. No. You'll know as you are to be known. And you'll know as your creator has, has seen you through all of this to this moment where we will have the center of the city, a picture of what, what brought redemption to everything for the purpose of bringing glory to God Almighty. And you know what we'll do in that moment? And I, I can't imagine how this will happen for those who have deep wounds. We will stand up and say hallelujah. That is healing. That is healing for you. I should stop there. Sorry for the, the going long here. You can't talk about this topic without tears. I hope that's true for you. You can't talk about this topic without hell either. Maybe that'll be next summer's August topic. All right? And, and, and John tells us about this when you read those verses there in chapter 1. As real as heaven is, as it's going to be, the opposite side of that coin is real too. And so there's, there's a sense here that, that, yes, as we dream about heaven and talk about it, we desire and want all those others to be with us. Right? This gives us compassion. It gives us mercy. It calls us to pray for those who don't believe. It's a sobering moment, too, to reflect on what it is that I do believe. And why do I want heaven? And this brings me back to the start. You want heaven because Jesus is there. And I'll say this to our young disciples in the room as application, right? When I was in your shoes, I'll be honest with you, desiring heaven because Jesus was there, wasn't that, uh, okay. Like, what, what's the stuff, right? I want the things, right? It's Christmas. <laughs> And I would just say to you, at this point in your life, right, it, 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 think about who your best friend is that you haven't seen over summer break. Think about who your favorite relative or grandparent is that you're dying to go home and see, right? Just an ounce of that excitement, right? And, and expand it into infinity is exactly what, what, what it will be like to be with Jesus. And the way you get there is by relationship. So to our young disciples in the room, I would just say, if that is not exciting to you at this point, I get it. Grow in your relationship with Jesus. Read his word. Fellowship with his people. Pray. And grow that relationship so that it does get to the point where, you know what? I don't care what's there. As long as he's there, I'm good. And this gets to the second application for our mature Christians in this room. All right? Is there a non-negotiable for you this morning about heaven? I will, I, I will be okay with heaven as long as so-and-so is there. I will be in heaven as long as, as, as this thing happens. Because you're not promised that. 
And that the, the, the treasure, if you will, of heaven is knowing that, that beyond anything else, you are with Jesus. Regardless of what he gives you, regardless of who is there. And that's a sobering thing for me too. If something were to happen to my children or my wife or vice versa, would I then say that I no longer want to be in that place? And if I were to say that, do you know what that tells me about my heart? It tells me that I cherish them more than the person who has died for me, the person who has given me life, the creator of this world, Jesus Christ. And I've got to do business with that. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you to do business with that too. To investigate what it means to think, okay, why doesn't Jesus, why isn't he enough for me? As I think about the new heavens and the new earth, why isn't he my treasure? Jesus says to us in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The pure in heart, what is that? It's an undivided heart. It's a heart that says, look, I, I don't know how everything works out, but I am sold out for you, even if you do the unimaginable to me. Because he has done the unimaginable for us. He has come in the flesh. He, he has condescended to us here. He has died for us in order to make us his treasure. And he leaves us these words, which I, I, I leave with you this morning, John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you be also. May the true treasure of heaven be just that for us, that where Jesus is, so you and I will be also. Amen? Appreciate your patience here. I knew this was going to go long. I'll tighten it up as we move along. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, so much to say about your plan of redemption and restoration and how you are and will make all things new. And we have the first fruits of that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which tells us uh, that this is for certain. Here's a taste of what's coming. You will resurrect our old bodies, our dead bodies, and you will give us new ones. And you will remove all the sin from those bodies and from our minds and from our hearts so that we may have perfect fellowship with you and we will dwell with you, you as our God and us as your people. And we will see you face to face. Would you this very moment prepare us for that? And would you make tomorrow a day of preparing us for that, knowing that as we go out into our workplaces, as we go out into our homes, and as we drive kids to sports and what, whatever it is, as we meet friends for coffee, that we are in some ways hastening the coming, as Second Peter says, that we are some way bringing renewal, pushing back against the effects of the fall as agents of yours here. Would you do this for your glory, we pray. Amen.